0: okay now I'm going to pray for myself Father God um, the women here need to hear your voice and not mine and so I pray Lord I, that you take this homework that I've done which is an empty cup and you would fill it with your Holy Spirit and you would transform these words into the words of life because that's what we feed on your very words of life and so I pray Father that you would do this now Name. Let me just step aside. Jesus, remember. Okay. Have you ever heard this phrase? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Have you ever heard that? You don't want to ever think about that too long, right? <laughs> because you go. Why oh, no? I do. Well, uh, in my file cabinet in my mom cave. I have several folders that are labeled Bible studies I have taught. And for years I've just been tossing the hard copies into this file and, uh, and they are super disorganized. So uh, I decided to put them all in a three ring binder in the order of the books of the Bible. And the first study that was in there was from October 2004 and it was on Exodus. Now, our teaching team that year consisted of myself and Tracy Hoover and Margo Starbuck. And uh, But what I remember most particularly was that Alan Poole, and he did this often, would let me, uh, for many people, would let us peruse his vast library and select commentaries to help us and uh, in whatever we were teaching. And so when I was reading these commentaries, I really, I found something that really surprised me. I found out, as you know, uh, well, let me preface this by saying, so Exodus, my teaching part was a lot about Egypt, so that Egyptian temples were designed very similarly to God's temple. They also had a holy of holies, and they had various courts, and so I talked with Alan about that because I don't know why, I just assumed. That God gave every idea for everything that's practiced by the Jews in their faith, he gave it to them originally. He like came to Abraham and said, Abraham, we're going to make a covenant. And this is what a covenant is. But that's not the way it worked. The covenant we know about is the one that God made with Abraham. And But what I didn't realize is that covenants weren't a part of the culture. They were making covenants between two parties all the time. Between people or tribes or families. They were they were doing that already. It was in the culture. God had taken something really familiar, very much a part of their culture, and he poured himself, I'm sorry, this is so loud. Can I push it back? Okay. He poured himself into it, and he made it a special covenant with Abraham, and uh, this is just my little aside, and I'm probably saying too much, but uh, what was different about that covenant was that they, they did everything that they always did. They had a sacrifice. They put the pieces on either side, and the two parties would walk through, but this time just God came through. Abraham didn't walk through those two pieces because God was not only the covenant maker, he was the covenant keeper. And do you know you practice this every Sunday when you take communion? Because the bread is the sacrifice. And it breaks, and it's placed down, and you walk, you walk up to the table, but God comes to you during that time. So it's a rehearsal of the covenant. So, making, hadn't been made to us. Alright, I didn't have to tell y'all that. Okay, let's see, so... Uh, so we have so this is what Paul has done too and he has explained he's got this divided congregation um, culturally divided he's got the Jewish and he's got the Gentile and he's used the Mosaic covenant or Mosaic law as we learned um, at first to describe that and to use it to describe what Christ, who Christ is, and what He has done, and uh, and and that, and then because of that, He says we have a new covenant. It's no longer the Mosaic covenant. It's and Jesus said, "This is the sign of my of the new covenant." Remember, He said that. Yeah. And we talked about the differences in the in the two when we were going through these first, this first part of the letter. And most particularly, as it concerned circumcision. Now, what was the main difference between the circumcision of the Mosaic Covenant and the circumcision of the New Covenant? It, one of them, the Mosaic Covenant, involved a physical change. And the New Covenant involved a spiritual change, a change of heart, circumcision of our hearts went way beyond, way beyond. So uh, you'll also recall that last week I told you the Roman church was divided along cultural lines, and I've said it twice. Okay, But up until now, Paul has used this discussion of the Mosaic Law as an explanation that the Jewish members of the church could really relate to. And it stemmed from something, such a part of their culture, and something that at that point was really making them stumble, stumble around because of it, because of it, because the way they had understood it all up to this time. Now he switches this to a discussion of something that's deeply understood by the Gentile members of his church. And what is that? It's adoption. So, but it's not just any adoption. It's most particularly, he takes the threads and the elements of Roman adoption First century Roman adoption, something that they are very familiar with, and he pours God into it. He helps them to understand what God has done using something they were really familiar with. Okay, so here's how it played out. And once we understand this, Then we're going to connect it to what Paul was explaining to them about their new relationship with the living God. Okay? So in Roman culture, this time in history, an adopted son was deliberately chosen. He was chosen by an adopting father to perpetuate his adopting father's name and to inherit his father's estate. A father might have a natural born son, that turns out to be delinquent or in some way incapable of taking care of, that estate, of the estate and the family matters. So this was to preserve their estate and their money and their all the things that matter to the family. This is why this was. So this was one way to solve the problem. This adopted son was chosen because of his superior ability to represent the, the family, to manage the family's future, and to inherit the family's estate. And so the process of this was very formal. In Roman Mm. law, there was this rule called patria potestis. That's Latin, and it means the father's power. It meant that the father had absolute power over his family. His children were considered his absolute possession. So in order to adopt a son, that he could use in his business, his estate, his family, and for for the well-being of the family's future, he had to negotiate with the father of the other family. The adoptee had to formally pass out of the patria potestis into which he was born and pass into the patria potestis of the adoptive father. So this involved a process, a very formal process. It's a two-step process. And the first step is called mancipatio, from which we get the word emancipation. He had to be emancipated from his blood-related father, and that patria protestus position, it's about a position that he held, OK? So they Conducted a symbolic sale. So you can imagine the scale, the Roman scale, you know this thing, right? And these copper pieces, these little pieces of copper, because it's just symbolic, and a little ceremony that's repeated three times. So here's the boy, and here's the money that's placed on the scale, and the first time they do this, the boy's natural father takes him back and says, no, 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 and then they do it again. that was so that the natural father could express his reluctance and communicate that to his, his uh, adoptive father. Uh, that he wanted to communicate that, I'm not throwing my son away. I'm not throwing him away. He is valuable to me to this day. This is, this is something I'm, I'm, uh, that's costing me too, personally costing me. And uh, so then they do that again, and then the third time the son is emancipated from his birth father. And they proceed to the ceremony, another part of the ceremony that's called vindicatio. And the adopting father then goes to the praetor or the magistrate and presents a legal case for the transfer of the son from one family to the next. And only then is the process of adoption complete. So four really important things have happened. First, the adopted son has lost all rights in his former family to the point that he now has no existence in that former family. He's gained all the rights of his new family. and this, I, Somebody said obligation. I'm confused by that word, obligation. This is where it plays in. He's no longer obligated to his old family. He is now totally responsible and obligated to his new family, um, he, and therefore, he's completely cut off from his past. And secondly, he became heir to his new father's estate, and even if other natural sons are born to, this, to his new father, they can't make any claim against the estate because they were natural sons. It doesn't affect the adopted son's rights. And third, the former life of the adopted son was completely obliterated. It was as if he never lived in that other family, like he was never born there, like he never lived. And all of his debts were canceled on the spot. All of his records in that family or anything he did with that family were obliterated. It was as if he was born on the day that he was adopted and he became like a new person who just started his life. And fourth, in the eyes of the Roman law, the adopted father is permanently and absolutely the son of his new father. So knowing this, now let's look at Romans chapter eight, verse 12, and we'll take these verses apart. and and see them now in this context with this underpinning. And this is something, you know what I've I've found over the years about when I read scripture is I kind of got to know the backstory because seriously, this book was written in a certain time period to a certain culture and you kind of got to go grab the threads in order to really understand what what the writer is trying to say. So he says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your natural, what your sinful nature urges you to do. And this is the reason why. Because your sinful nature was of your old existence, right? Which has died. It's been obliterated. You, so you, you are, don't have to be obligated to it or to follow it anymore, and it has no authority over you like it did. You've been emancipated and all the rights that Satan may have had because of sin and condemnation and everything else that he may have had as the patria potestis of you they've been cancelled your debt is cancelled too, what you owed it's been paid by your adoptive father and that was done at the cross it was paid at the cross 13 for if you live by its dictates you will die But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. There's a reason why Paul calls all of us sons. It's not a statement of gender. It has nothing to do with our gender. It's a statement of position. You've become a son an adopted son with all the rights and privileges and the inheritance that is bestowed upon the adopted son. That, so you are one of the sons of God in that understanding. 15. So you've not received a spirit to make you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And this is so interesting, this has to do with, uh, uh, well, let me just read this, make sure I I say what I want to say here. So, you know, Paul was writing to a particular audience, always remember that, and it's believed that many of the Gentiles that he addressed were like low status individuals, such as slaves and freed persons. And the Jews who settled in Rome around the second century before Christ were originally brought in as slaves when Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 B.C., So this audience readily comprehends all of these references to slavery. And they know what a cruel slave master is. Slaves have no authority. They obey out of fear, out of fear of punishment. So Paul contrasts that now with their new position as adopted sons and heirs. Child-parent relationship is not characterized by fear or by fear of losing the relationship. And a child does have authority in the house, in the house of his father, unlike a servant. As children of God, we're to move about in the world knowing that we belong to our father, God. We can have confidence about that. Our purpose is to honor the name of our new family as we live in our new status. And I want to pause up, pause here. This is, this is where I want to make this really important point. Adoption can change the position from slave to son, but it can't change the heart. Heart change is the work of God's Holy Spirit. We become sons positionally by adoption But we also become sons by regeneration, which gives us the nature of our new family. It gives us the spiritual genetics of our new family. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Adoption has conferred the name and the title, but regeneration confers the nature of God, our new father. And we can have confidence about that. Our purpose is to honor the name of our new family as we live in our new status. Okay. Uh, In other words, we now become not only adopted children, but we are also now partakers of the divine nature of God. In verse 15, the second part of it, now we call him Abba, Father. Now, we have access to fearless intimacy. We have no fear with God. My sister is a member of a Messianic Jewish congregation. I have Jewish members, of, uh, people on either side of my family. Um, and uh, But my sister is, is a, a Christian who uh, worships with Christian Jews, Messianic congregation. And this congregation is Jewish, but in fact, I'm repeating myself. They believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and they work him. And they worship him. Well, my sister begins all of her prayers like this. I've heard her say it many times. She says, "Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe." She doesn't say it in Hebrew, although she knows the Hebrew. Baruch Eloheinu Melech But Jesus called God Abba. He doesn't call him the uh, uh, in his relationship with him, ruler of the universe. In fact, he called him daddy. Seventy times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as calling God Abba, and are encouraging his disciples to too. And uh, one of the things I was reading says, if you go to Israel, you'll hear all the children calling their fathers Abba and their mothers Ema. So um, it's intimate. The Jewish people of Of Jesus' day, though, were so afraid of taking God's name in vain that they didn't say his name at all. They would say Ha-Shem, which means the name. There's no intimacy there. There is fear. So Paul is telling the people in the Roman church, and subsequently he's telling us, too, that our relationship with God has really changed. We read about this change in in John's Gospel when Mary encounters Jesus in the garden after his death and resurrection, and he has to say to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Something has changed. And how do we know that we know that we know? that this is the case, that our relationship has changed, and that we are now sons? Verse 16, for his spirit joins our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit tells our spirit that it is true. He testifies and affirms to our spirit the veracity of this change. Some theologians say that the supreme name for the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. Why? because it is his work, it's of bringing us into the family and conforming us to the family resemblance that dominates his role in the Trinity. Uh, The longing to belong, and this is kind of one of the ways that I I react to this, so all my life I've struggled to feel as though I belong. It's a real and genuine struggle uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've just ah, wrestled with that. I've struggled to believe, that I, to, to feel that I belong to anyone or anywhere and I don't really know why. It could be because uh, I'm the fourth of the of five children in my family and I learned to be very independent. I knew how to fly under the radar of my parents' scrutiny, so I became young. Yeah. Or well, maybe it was because we moved so much. Dad worked for IBM. we moved and moved and moved. We were only there for like three or four years and we were off again. So, roots. What were those? So, um, one day I was thinking about this. And uh, my struggle to feel like I belong. I long, I long to feel like I belong somewhere. And uh, I think through my head, let's see. Uh, but uh, see, I, I was thinking that, and I bet you other people feel that too. But as I expressed this longing to the air this one day, This answer came back and and it zipped through my head. And uh, and this answer, I mean, I hold on to it. I hold on to it. I cling to this answer. And it encourages me and it helps me to keep going and to keep obeying God and to keep believing in his goodness. And you know what it is? It says it was this thought. I said, you belong to me. (laughs) I was like. I belong to God, I, I belong to God. And whenever these terrible thoughts of you belong here, nobody really wants to do, nobody wants you, nobody. This thought goes, I claim that, Goes. you belong to me. It's like I'm permanently sealed and I belong to someone. I belong to the king of the universe, I belong why does that give me courage it makes me brave it makes me walk out and do things that i'm too scared to do on my own you know to say things to walk the neighborhood and talk to my neighbors i prayed with a neighbor yesterday in the street you know because like i have courage so do you do you also here's another one that i think we struggle with in our civil war that's raging inside of us all the time do you ever wonder how much you're worth go through these periods of our life and sometimes we feel really needed and then you get to a stage like mine. I'm an empty nester and now, who am I now? And, you know, what is my value? Do I have any value at all? But, all those years it was my job. It was my job, my job, you know? And and so God gave me an answer to that one day. He said it's the cross. You want to know how valuable you are, Donna? The cross is the proof that you are very valuable to God. He paid a huge price for you. He paid the ultimate price. He he sacrificed his son. You think you're not worth anything? Oh, my word. Look what he did to have you. Well, the spirit of adoption tells you these things are true. He speaks to your spirit. And the Spirit keeps telling you these things every day. So let me summarize what I've said as I get ready to close. This passage of Paul's letter informs us, us believers in Christ, that we have six benefits of being a son or child of God. So here they are. One, security. We enjoy sonship. We're no longer slaves. We're the inheritors. We are the sons of God. It's position. Two, authority. We're now under God's authority. Our obligation is to Him. And He has given us authority over sin and the devil. Three, intimacy. We call God Daddy. We can enter His throne room unannounced. boldness and confidence I thought, did she was she the one that said in the book that Esther had to get permission to go into the throne room yeah she did you don't have to get permission you can run in there like because you're his child Um, and we can run into his arms which are open to us Uh, for assurance Holy Spirit comes alongside us and gives us assurance that we are truly in God's family. He provides us with an inner witness in our hearts that, yes, God really loves us and values us. Five, inheritance. We have an incredible future. We are joint heirs with Christ, all that the Father possesses we are the inheritors of his estate. And I'll tell you, sometimes when I I have to screw up the courage to read the news, and when I read the news, I think, oh, Lord. But the hope that I have is that I'm not home. This is not my home. I have an inheritance. I have a home awaiting me. And uh, this is not written in here, but (laughs) I love, one of the things I used as a resource was Charles Swindoll's uh, commentary on this book, the Bible, and he said, we're like, as adopted children, we have our bags packed. And we have our papers in our hand, that's the seal of the Holy Spirit, and we're waiting to get picked up to be taken to our new home. I thought, what a great picture, you know, got our bags packed. Uh, And um, finally, family likeness. We share in Christ's sufferings because we're his brothers and sisters. We're in his family. He faced rejection by the world. Um, when he exposed sinfulness and warned of judgment and offered salvation through himself, and we experience the same thing. When we live for him and we speak of him. Hey, when I prayed for that neighbor in the street yesterday who was telling me all of his troubles and things, um, I didn't know where he stood with Christ. He'd go to look at me and say, what the heck, I just turned around. But he didn't. He didn't. It, takes, it gives us the courage when we represent our family, when we represent the kingdom of God, we're out there. And we, we also bear the, like, the family likeness of suffering. And we, come, we become more and more like the Son and our Father in our character and in our attitudes. So that's a takes time, but it happens. So now, uh, I have watched these videos on YouTube uh, called the Dodo. Have you guys ever watched these things? I don't know why, but I love these stories. They're the stories of the adoption to forever families of lost or abandoned dogs, primarily dogs. Other animals, but I've seen a lot of dogs. Uh, initially, when first found, these poor creatures are really scared. They're very frightened. And they are often bearing the marks of the abuse of their abandonment. They're starving. They're thin. They're diseased. They don't wag their tails. They cower in fear. And then you will watch them be rescued and taken home. And you see over months, sometimes longer, that they're fed they're taken to the vet they're loved they're adopted into a family and i cry every single time i watch one of these things because i can relate i watch this creature be transformed they now belong and they're loved and they gain health and they learn to wag their tails and they learn to play And they're filled with joy. And this is us. We're adopted. We're rescued. We're taken into God's house. We're fed. We are in his family. So let me close with these words from a song by third day. It's called You Are Mine. It doesn't take much for my heart to break. You've done it for what seems a millionth time. Whenever I hear of your saving grace, and how you gave your life in exchange for mine, and it doesn't take much for me to shed a tear, you've done so many things that make me cry. Whenever I think all that I've done, and everything that you have done to make it right, sometimes I wonder why you loved me and I, I, I will tell you this when I first became a Christian I used to stand at the ironing board ironing and the tears would just point on my face because I had the hardest time believing God could love me but he, he was telling me his spirit was witness my spirit that he loved me and I'd go why 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 and it was because later I learned it's about him it's not about me and why you ever chose to call me child, I remember just by your sacrifice, I can say, it. I am yours and you are mine. Let's pray. Father God, we belong to you. And I pray for my sisters anytime they feel this terrible internal disorientation, disenfranchisement, please, O Holy Spirit of God, tell them the truth, that they belong to you, and that they're worth so much to you. You have put great value on them and shown them through the sacrifice of, of your Son. May they walk with Christ today, and all that means, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.